This week's episode is a rebroadcast episode with one of my favorite guests ever, Dr. Romani. We talk all about narcissism and just so you know for context, this was recorded during lockdown back in 2020. I hope you enjoy and I'll see you next week. Welcome to Ask a Matchmaker. I'm your host, Matchmaker Maria. In this week's episode, I'm speaking to clinical psychologist and narcissism expert, Dr. Romani, and she'll be joining us as I answer your dating and relationship questions. Let's get started. My guest today is Dr. Romani. She is a licensed clinical psychologist in Los Angeles, California, and a professor of psychology at California State University, Los Angeles. She takes on our modern scourges of entitlement and incivility in the book, Don't You Know Who I Am? How to Stay Sane in the Era of Narcissism, Entitlement, and Incivility. She is the author of the Modern Relationship Survival Manual, Should I Stay or Should I Go? Surviving a Relationship with a Narcissist. The focus of Dr. Romani's clinical, academic, and consultative work is the etiology and impact of narcissism and related high-conflict, entitled, antagonistic personality styles on human relationships, mental health, and societal expectations. Welcome, Dr. Romani. I'm so excited you're here today. It's such a pleasure to see you again. I love working with you. So thank you. And I'm so glad to talk to this audience about these issues. If ever there's a group that needs to know about this, it's a group that's going through a matchmaking process. Oh yeah. And not even just a matchmaking process, just a group of singles, which is my entire oh, audience. Yeah, <laughs> a thousand percent. This is the group I always want to reach because if they could get this on the front end, they won't get harmed on the back end, which is what most of what I see is people who are going through this in their relationships. And that's like, that was most of our audio questions was so many of the questions were, what does the front end look like? And then the rest of the questions were like, okay, I'm in this really poor relationship. How do I get out? And so it just seemed like there's like bookends of how we want to avoid it. And now, okay, now we have it. How do we get rid of it? You know? Right. Right. So tell me more about clinical psychology. How did you decide to focus on narcissism? You know, it was one of those things that like most things in life, it's a journey you never could have planned for yourself. And I was doing research at the university on the fact that some people were really mean to healthcare professionals. They'd come into a clinic, they'd be really rude to the receptionist, they'd be rude to the nurse, they'd be rude. And I was thinking like, this is interesting. Like these people aren't gonna get very good healthcare. And I thought, these are like the people who are mean at Starbucks. And these are the people who are just, they're not nice. And that whole idea of not niceness then paralleled with what I was seeing in my clinical practice, which was over and over and over again, people in long-term relationships and marriages telling me that I live with a person who doubts my reality, who shows me no empathy. And that all started about 15 years ago. And then things politically changed in our country. And this word started getting used more. And that sort of perfect storm of social media, society, what I was seeing in my research and what I was seeing in my clinical practice led me to do this. And a lot of people say, hey, you're not supposed to really talk about this in mental health. To me, that meant we better talk about this in mental health. And so that's how I got into it. It's so funny that you mentioned, because you just mentioned the, the keyword politics. I feel like we didn't really talk about narcissism until I think like a perfect storm of yes, politics, but also the, I think the emergence of all those shows on investigative discovery and recently the Dirty John podcast, the popularity of that. And the, I guess the subsequent series of that, what you said, the the word just started getting used more and more. Mm -hmm. And I think now people are a little bit more aware of it. 
Yes. And yet there's still not Maria. Part of the reason I love doing podcasts with folks like you is like so many people don't understand what the word really means. And right. I still think there's a lot of people out there who think that the narcissist is the person who's in love with themselves. And they really focus on the person who needs to look good on their pictures and takes lots of selfies. And I swear to you, that's the tiniest, tiniest bit of the iceberg that is this thing called narcissism, which is why people suffer so much with it. So I actually think a lot of it too was reality TV of people behaving really badly and everybody paying attention to them. These people made a lot of money behaving badly. Then you had social media where basically you had a structure for people to seek out attention. So these were all the things that narcissists were actually having to spend a lot more effort on to get attention. You actually have to get up and leave the house. Now they could just do it from home. I mean, now they're literally doing it from home. Literally. Exactly. And so, but it's a lot more toxic than that. And so it's my hope in the course of talking with folks on this. So what is, so what is, okay, you're saying that most people only know like the basic the byline of narcissism. I mean, we're going to go through a lot of questions today and I'm sure you're going to answer that way more in depth, but are we born with narcissism or is this something, when do we learn narcissism? So narcissism is not something that's inborn. The closest we might see is that some people might be born with certain temperaments that are a little bit more difficult. These are kids who are just more demanding and they might be a lot more impulsive and they may be more oppositional, the meaning that they don't follow the rules. Those might be the tiny little beginning seeds of that. But at the end of the day, this really is something that's made. And it's very much a byproduct of a, a parenting and a little bit of society. Now, there are people, and where it's tricky, Maria, is that I've worked with people who say, listen, I had three kids. They were close enough in age that they were raised almost identically. And yet I've got one who's a raging narcissist and two who are actually cool people, which is why I say there is some sort of temperamental piece. But when it comes down to brass tacks, it's things like parents who are not really available to their kids emotionally, parents who are deeply distracted, parents who are very inconsistent, and at the extreme can even be parents who are abusive. Because these are people, little people who grow up in the big people who can't regulate their emotions, who don't understand empathy, who live for validation because that's really all they got from their parents. They'd be the kids who the parents would show up to every soccer game with the cooler and I'm so proud of you. But when that kid had an emotional need or wasn't playing soccer, the parents weren't interested because it's almost like they weren't really entertained at that. You've said a few things and I've been just kind of writing down keywords because I want to ask you about them. So you say like, for instance, um, inconsistency. What does that mean? Like I just had a baby and my second child a month ago. <laughs> How do I make sure she doesn't become a raging narcissist? <laughs> Babies is where this all begins, actually. An okay. inconsistent parent is a parent who about half the time doesn't respond to their child or somebody doesn't respond to that child. So in other words, the child is calling out for the mother or the father or caregiver and somebody responds to that call. Now, if the child feels like, well, sometimes these people show up and sometimes they really don't, the child starts to feel unsafe in the world. And so they're wondering, why isn't anyone coming? So they might sort of ramp up their game. And then over time, they might learn, oh, the only way I can get these people to pay attention to me is if I cater to some of their needs. And th what they don't do is develop their own independent sense of self. Their sense of self becomes entirely about pleasing these parents. And then they learn learn validation is what it's all about. And they don't learn things like empathy. Empathy is taught by parents recently now that you said that like, so one of the or my my husband and I when we talk about like our parenting style one of our things is like don't raise a sociopath like whatever you do this is everything we do is just like driven by that demand so recently my son when I was um when I was pregnant uh my son saw me crying because I had fallen um down some stairs right, right. 
uh, right before I saw you in Utah, right? And he goes, mommy, you okay? Mommy, are you okay? And then he went and got me some ice. Like he knew in the fridge, he's two years old. He knew to go to the fridge, the freezer and get some ice. And I just turned to my husband, I'm like, he's not a sociopath. High five. <laughs> like, you know, that's off the list. But that, that's that was a thing. That was a concern for us. You know why? Because we, we've both read your books and we got really scared. That's all it takes to like, I feel like make a better parent is read Dr. Romney's books and none of you the fear instilled as a parent, you know, <laughs> yeah, I think it's about it's, we get so caught in, I want my kid to go to the right preschool. I want them to go to the, to do this. I'm like, take all that away. All you need to do is teach this child respect for themselves, respect for other people, compassion, empathy, reward stuff. Wow. Um, and then another thing you said, you mentioned before was about culture and society. I wanted to ask you, are there certain cultures or societies where there is more narcissism or less narcissism? Yeah. You know, one thing we definitely see is cultures, family systems that are more authoritarian, that are more paternalistic, that are more top down. You do as I say, and you don't question it where there's different levels of rights between people. Men may have more rights than women. The very rich have a lot more than the very poor. When you see stratification, when you see a lot of authoritarianism, when you see these sorts of strong army cultures where it's like you just have to, when I say strong army, I mean strong army, not like a military, but I mean that this idea that you just follow the rules blindly and also cultures where all that people care about is how the family looks to other people, but they don't actually make sure that the people in the family are doing okay. It's like, we have to look good. Don't talk about our problems. Keep everything a secret. Those are the cultures that set people up for narcissism. Is there a correlation between individualistic or collectivist societies? Um, no, it's interesting you bring that up. Maria, because no. And the reason I say that is that it comes down to, because what we see in collectivist societies is in collectivist societies, people often feel like the family is more important than anyone, anything else. So they'll often silence their own voices to be able to support someone in the family who, you know what I'm saying? It's like about protecting the family. And if the family mm -hmm. system is toxic, then what you're going to run into is a situation where people feel like they're having to be, they almost have to silence their own feelings to support this toxic family system. So that can happen in collectivist cultures. So it's, it's very intuitive to say, oh, no, this must only be individualistic. Not at all. This is very much a part of collectivist cultures, too. Okay. Wow. That's interesting. How about when it comes to what you see in modern dating? Now, I'm going to go through questions from our audience, but... but do you see an insurgence of narcissism with the evolution of modern dating? You know, with Absolutely. the apps and websites? Yes, modern dating has totally become a narcissist ground game. It's a volume game. It's a how do you look game. It's a how do you look on paper game. All of that is the narcissist's strongest suits. What you don't get to see initially as much as are they compassionate? Are they kind? How, they, how do they handle themselves under stress or disappointment? And that's how you can figure out if someone's a narcissist. But unfortunately, it is a very much surface level. How do they look? What do they do? Who are they? Kind of. And that because it's that level, it absolutely has become a very, very tricky space. So people really need to understand this because if they are using those platforms, then they need more information once they start spending time with this person to determine, ah, 
this, this, this doesn't feel good, and then give themselves permission to address it or step away from it. You approach this from the direction of that it's easier for a narcissist to get dates because now there's, you know, I think in online dating, no one's vouching for you, right? It's not meeting someone through friends. It's not meeting someone through a hobby or, you know, a society event, let's say church or whatever. People around them can vouch for that person, even through a matchmaker. (laughs) It's, you know, I feel like it's like the same as meeting someone out and about. If you don't have a connection with that person in some way, like, you know, I love it when people have when I meet people who are wondering if they're dating someone bad, I always say, have you met their friends? And what did their friends say? Mm. Because I've noticed when you're with a bad person, their friends will tell you, they'll say, oh, you know, why are you with this asshole? And I'm like, oh, okay, he's an asshole. Because no one would ever call a person who's not an asshole an asshole. Right, right. But you also do have the problem that a lot of narcissists are surrounded by enablers. So they yes, keep that's out the people who call them assholes and they keep a bunch of enablers around them. So they're enabling friends. And listen, the classic narcissistic trick, especially narcissists, the research shows make more money, mm-hmm. are more likely to be in leadership, are more likely to be ambitious. Okay. So and not saying that all ambitious people are narcissistic, but they're the people who are, you're often told by your mama that this is the one for you because they're going to take good care of you. And that's where it gets dangerous. And because narcissists do things like use generosity to their advantage, they're the person who will pick up the check for everybody's drinks. Everyone's going to think he's a great guy. I've read your books and I know that you define narcissism and there's different definitions. There's different types of narcissism, narcissists. Mm -hmm. Do these narcissists interact with each other? Like, is it mutually exclusive? You can only be, let's go through them really quick. You, there are, there's a communal narcissist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the communal narcissist is, Hey, I'm going to be the most charitable giving person in the world, but I better get validation for that. So it's like, it's the picture of them rescuing elephants, but they put it all over Instagram and they expect validation. They don't just go rescue the elephants because it's what feels right to them. They need to get validated. And if they don't, they get a little bit cranky or actually a lot cranky. And this is actually one of my biggest pet peeves in general with social media. It, I, and I have a, I don't have that many pet peeves, but this is, let's say, number two. One day I'll tell my audience what my number one pet peeve is. But uh, my number two pet peeve is this, is when people use social media to show their generosity. I shouldn't have to watch a Facebook video or an Instagram video to see that you donated to a cause. Like I've seen women or men, you know, make care packages and the, they have like a whole video, like here's a care package for you and here's a care package for you. And I'm just like, I've done that and I've never even thought to like film myself giving away stuff. One of the people on here, Christopher said, he said it brilliantly, far more brilliantly than I am. He said, it's virtue signaling. Virtue signaling is very much something we often see in line with the narcissistic personality stuff because there's a real self-righteousness to the narcissistic personality. So it's like, look how great I am. But again, they're doing the good deed to get validation, not because from their heart of hearts, they feel like, I care about animals or I care about people who are living on the streets. It's really like, ooh, what's the thing that's going to get me the most validation? And then people who spend time with these really giving people will say, you know, it's funny. They're really terrible when you're with them one-on-one, but good golly, they do sure donate a lot and speak out about these causes, but they're actually not nice people. And that disconnect means if you're in a relationship with a communal narcissist, everyone's saying, oh my gosh, you're with this person who's just a modern day humanitarian. And you're going, my, my life behind closed doors is terrible. Right. And yet everyone thinks this person's a humanitarian. Right. That's what's so hard if you're in a relationship with right. a communal narcissist. So we've got communal. Then we have benevolent. 
the benign narcissist. Now, benign. The benign narcissist is somebody who you might be able to make a horse race for this relationship, but I don't know if you want to bother. They tend to be almost more of your textbook. Nar- like what people, when I say what lay people think narcissists are, they're superficial, they're braggy, they're a little bit arrogant. They'll be like, oh, I come to this restaurant regularly. So really I expect you to see me right away. It's that entitled thing, you know, so, but, but they don't tend to, they don't to be a, tend to be as heavy handed with the manipulativeness. They don't tend to be as certainly not exploitative. They don't feel dangerous, but they're definitely the kind of person where it's very superficial. And right. so in the moment it goes into something deeper, they're really not going to be able to play in, in that way. So, it, so benign narcissists can trick people, especially in the early phases of dating. Cause in the first, four, six, eight, ten weeks, a lot of it is about what looks like fun and what is fun. And then what might happen is after a few months, you might say, do I really know this person? And I'm going to tell you now, you're probably never going to know them because they don't know themselves. That's benign narcissism. I always say, have a few benign narcissists on ice like your friends because they are so much fun at a party. They're definitely the ones who are going to get you into that place you can't easily get into because they're so entitled. But definitely don't take your deepest, darkest secrets to them because they'll be n- no use to you at those times. And then after that, we have, I don't want to go straight to malignant. I think we need to save that for a second. I want to go to covert. So covert narcissism is actually something that's really important for people on this podcast and in this audience to understand because the covert narcissist is the kind of narcissism nobody talks about, yet it's so critical. They're the ones who always view themselves as victims, as though the world is always out to get them. Woe is me. Why isn't anything going my way? Why is everyone else getting what they want, but not me? It's passive aggressive. It's victimy. It's resentful. It's a woman it's getting, I, you know, I dated one and I'll never forget it. I was elected president of my undergrad university and his response was like, well, do you think you're smarter than me? Yes. And I'm just like, whoa, like, like, congratulations, Maria. That's amazing. <laughs> and it, that kind of thing, like when you, and, and or even early in the dating relationship, you'll say that you might even say one offhanded thing. Like you might get the name of where they went to college wrong and talk about a college that's not as fancy as the college they went to. And they might go berserk. Like, what are you trying to say? Did it? Uh, and they'll just, and you'll be like, oh my gosh, I didn't. Or like, that. they'll say stuff like, oh, if I only had, like, you know, I've seen other covert, I, I deal with covert narcissists, not necessarily at work so much, but hearing people's breakup stories. Yeah. And when they say stuff like, well, you know, he'd say stuff like, you know, if only my parents had more money, I could have had the same opportunities as this Bingo. person. Bingo. And I'm like, okay, yeah. well, you know, <laughs> or, uh, you know, I think that's, it's probably true for a lot of people, not just you. Their suffering being the only suffering that has ever happened. And oh, it, yeah. like you said, it's especially when something's going well for someone. So you're, if you're in a relationship with a covert narcissist, if things aren't going exactly the way they want, which they never are because they're a victim, but they are going well for you, expect a lot of sullenness, resentfulness. And they're the person, when you take them out to meet your friends or take them to a party, they may sulk in the corner because they don't feel like they fit in or they're the center of attention. Many times in an early dating part of the relationship, with a covert narcissistic personality, one of the things is a person says, oh, you know what? They're probably just a little anxious or maybe they're a little sad. And there's a real pull to want to rescue this person. And that gets really dangerous because then you can really get caught in, I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to make them feel comfortable. I'm going to address their anxiety because they're not as much of the 
in-your-face narcissist. So you, you just might think, oh, you know, the world didn't understand them and they didn't really get a fair shot. And they did, they, they did get think, that promotion. This is just from my own, even personal but professional experience. Do you think covert narcissists tend to be attracted to really, covert narcissistic men tend to be attracted to smart and successful women as a way, like in the beginning, they can think to themselves like, oh, she's smart, successful. Look what I got. You know, it's like the big fish. But at the same time, you know, within once that I, you, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong here, but maybe once that the shine comes off of a new relationship, that's when all the covert narcissist traits come out. I think that what ends up happening is I think all narcissistic personalities are a little, are, are vulnerable to choosing a partner they think is desirable on whatever the thing it is, whether it's smarts, whether it's beauty, whether it's connections, whatever it is, they're going to choose on that. With a covert narcissistic person, they may choose a smart partner, but the first time their victimization gets triggered, then they're going to say, oh, you think you're better than me? Do you think you're smarter than me? Right. And they'll get very, very victimy very, very quickly. So like I said, a lot of people don't pick this one up because the covert narcissist often more often looks sad and anxious as though they're not going to fit in. And you might spend the whole night at that party or that gathering trying to draw them out and it might escalate and get, they might get angrier and angrier at you for trying to pull them out. Okay, so that's covert. Let's talk about malignant narcissism. Is yeah. that our last type? No, there's also the grandiose narcissist. And I think the grandiose narcissist is really the most classical narcissist. This is the, I'm so great. Look at me. I'm never going to wait in line. You know, I know more than you. Aren't I beautiful? Pay attention to me. That's what we've all been raised on as it's sort of what a narcissist is. Now, when a grandiose narcissist things start going badly for them. Maybe they get laid off. Maybe they start, they lose money in a bad investment, something like that. Then their covert side is going to come out and there's victim, 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 victim all the time. So those are almost two parts. And some people are grandiose as long as things are going well for them. But when things start going badly, you're going to see that victimy piece jump out and make them, they look more covert because narcissistic people as a rule, cannot regulate disappointment or stress. So if something doesn't go the way they want, they, again, go berserk. They lose it because they can't stand that they didn't get their way. They start tantruming right. like a child who had something, like had a toy taken away or their, their sibling ran off with something of theirs. It's literally a tantrum. And then you have malignant narcissism. For those listening, I wish you could see Dr. Romney's face the moment. Oh, the you can't see my face. Here I am. Like, I mean, emotion. like an explosion <laughs> of emotions. <laughs> well, it'd probably terrify everyone. It's that the malignant narcissist is the most dangerous nar narcissist. They're manipulative. They're exploitative. They're Machiavellian, meaning they'll turn the situation any which way, politically, you know, through your friends, through your family, to turn the situation to their advantage. They're willing to take advantage of people in any way. They are coercive, meaning that they will get whatever they want from you any which way they can. It can be a very uncomfortable relationship. Sexually, you may feel very much at risk. And to me, malignant narcissism is one of the last stops on the train before we get into full-blown psychopathy. And that's a whole different conversation for another day. But malignant narcissists, there's a cruelty to them. And it's, it's everything we know about narcissism, but in a more dangerous form because they're, again, exploitative, meaning that they're willing to take advantage of other people to their benefit. 
getting money out of you, getting favors out of you, sexual coercion, where they're like, oh, you know, really, are you such a prude that you wouldn't do this? And you end up giving in more and more and more to demands that feel more and more uncomfortable. And they feel they have the right to make those asks of you. Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> it's, a lot. it's dangerous. It's actually malignant narcissism is the pattern we'd most likely be see associated with violence in a relationship, or if right. not physical violence, literally yelling, screaming, public humiliation, that right. kind of stuff. You mentioned like sexual deviance. What do you mean by that? Sex for a narcissist is not like sex for a healthy person. Sex in narcissism is a very superficial game. It's about pleasure. It's about performance. It's about prowess, but it's definitely not about connection and intimacy. A lot of people in narcissistic relationships will feel manipulated in the sense that, well, my ex-partner did this, or really, you're going to pull this prudiness, or like, I'm looking, especially once they know they've hooked you, and then they'll use the sexuality as a place to manipulate you, and then what happens is, it's not uncommon for people to give in more and more and more into sexual demands that feel very uncomfortable to them, but they want to keep the relationship going. And that can really throw off the power balance of a relationship whereby a person may literally feel like they're giving into stuff to keep this person, but they're feeling more and more ashamed of the, of the things that they're agreeing to just to keep the narcissist. And now the narcissist holds all the power. And again, what we see things like sexual addiction much, 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 much more common in narcissism. I'd actually be willing to argue that probably over 90% of sex addicts are narcissists. I think sex addiction is sort of code for a form of narcissism. And well, how would you define sex addiction? I, I define sex addiction as somebody who's compulsively wanting to have sex. I mean, they either think about it all the time, they, they use pornography compulsively, they might go to paid sex workers compulsively, they try to accumulate lots of partners, they need to basically get off all the time. And they will do that within a relationship too, not caring how they're hurting their partner. That's a lot of information about different types of people that all of us not only have maybe one-on-one -on -one interactions with, but we also see our society being yeah. driven by narcissism. And, you know, I just feel like lately, I feel like I'm being gaslit on a daily basis when I'm watching TV, listening to the radio. Like, it just seems like a lot happening at once. Yeah, I mean, so you use the word, I just want to make sure everyone in, in, the, in, in the room knows what it means, gaslighting. Okay, so gaslighting is when somebody denies your reality. And that really messes with your head. The most simple example of gaslighting is you're being too sensitive. Other classical examples of you're making too big a deal out of it. It's not that important. I never said that. Stop bringing up the past. Those are all things that are meant to play with your reality saying, well, the past is relevant here, but maybe it's not relevant here. And so you really get caught in the sense of, do I even have a right to say this? Do I even have a right to feel this? Mm -hmm. For anybody to doubt your reality is psychologically abusive. And so gaslighting is emotional abuse. There's no two ways about it. And it is one of the narcissist's first go-to tools. And so you always feel chronically confused in the relationship. Thank you. Let's start with our audio questions. Hi, Dr. Armani. I'd like to know when dating someone new, what are the earliest signs that you may be dating a narcissist? Thanks so much. So to that really important question, the early signs are what especially single people want to know. I would say there's one red flag 
that pops out pretty early. And if you could remember this, you'll be in great shape. That red flag is that they become, they're very hypersensitive and they overreact to even a little slight or a little feedback. So you might say to them on a third date, they might say, did you like the restaurant? And you would say, you know, I did, but I found it to be noisy and I couldn't hear you. And it's weird how they made that top and odd. Well, then the narcissist goes into, really? Well, why don't you pick the restaurant next time? You know what? I, you know, I can't believe, and then they make it about them. You're like, oh my gosh, I answered this question honestly. That will happen early with a narcissist. I'd say by week three, pay attention and get out while you can still cut your losses. A lot of people say, no, 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 I'm so sorry. I loved the restaurant. Oh, no, no, I'm so, and then the rest of the night, they'll be sullen. The rest of the night, you'll try to win them over and welcome to the rest of your relationship. Wow. That's the main one. <laughs> the other ones you'll notice are, how do they treat other people? That can happen in one of two ways. Either they're too, too friendly, too, too, like almost like they're violating boundaries, too flirty, too like, hey, hey, get me that good table. Or they're really nasty. Like, hello, snap, snap, you know, can I have that? So it's either very entitled or a little bit too cozy, friendly, boundary, loosey, weird feeling. That's another way you can tell this early on. Number three, pay attention to whether or not they're paying attention. Is this the person who's constantly on their phone, is so distracted, and then they yammer on about what they wanna talk about, but when it comes to you talking, they're constantly distracted and they'll say, oh, I'm so sorry, I have ADD. No, you don't have ADD because you just talked for 20 minutes without interruption when it was about yourself. Those are three great examples of things to look for early in the relationship. Wow, let's go to our next question. Hi. My name's Jennifer. I'm 31 years old. And my question is, is there a way to cut the attachment with a narcissist man without going no contact? Or is there a way to fade away over time? I ask this because removing people from my life is really difficult and going no contact seems to bring it more anxiety than to just fade away over time. Jennifer, great question. So I'll tell you, the idea of no contact, let me explain what that concept is. No contact is just what it sounds like. There's someone in your life, you're like, I'm done. And you literally go no contact. Sometimes you block them. You don't take their calls. You don't respond to their texts or their emails, or even if they show up at your house. And as Jennifer said, and she's so smart, is that a lot for a lot of people, this is too anxiety provoking. And I get it. Now, does no contact work? Yeah. They might get angry for a while. They might even stalk you, but ultimately they will go away because they get bored. But it's not an option for everyone. It really isn't. In fact, I don't even think it's an option for most people. So the thing we suggest, I suggest people do is something called gray rock. To gray rock someone is to really not engage with them in any significantly meaningful way, meaning they don't get that emotional part of you. You might ask them, they, you might talk about the weather, you might let them talk and not talk about yourself. You keep the conversation very tight very emotional, very stale, and very disengaged. And as Jennifer, is it called gray rock? It's called gray rock because what's the most boring thing in the world? If you saw a gray rock on the ground, you wouldn't notice it. And so it's just that. It's like you're, you're as uninteresting as a gray rock. And so it's a Jennifer's point. Can you then slowly fade away? Yeah, because you got to remember this about a narcissist. 
they don't like things that are not validating. Everything's about validation for them. So your gray rocking means you're not interested, interesting anymore. So to Jennifer's point, what you got to remember is when you first gray rock a narcissist, they actually initially get angry. They kind of say like, who do you think you are? Like, are you too uppity to talk with me? Like, what's your problem? Right. You got to get over that hump, Jennifer. You got to get over that hump. And then they're going to be like, okay, this is not working for me. I'm not getting anything here. So then they'll move on to a new source of narcissistic supply or validation. And then they'll leave you behind. But you got to be able to white knuckle when they get angry and not get sucked back in when they're manipulating and guilting you to get back into the relationship. I have done this technique on a few people in my life. And now that I know that there's a word for it, I just feel like you blew my mind. (laughs) The last time I gray rocked someone was in January. I remember they called me and they just wanted to talk. And this is a person who likes to, I feel like they take advantage of a lot of the dating advice. Like, oh, I'm friends with Maria, so I can just ask and just kind of like unload their problems. And, you know, I try to, you know, I I don't mind my friends asking me for dating help. Absolutely. I mean, as a friend, I want to help just like any friend wants to help their friends in dating, but sometimes people can really take advantage. And this person was um, a narcissist, benign. I was acting very short. I noticed like he was like, so how was new year? So I'm like, it was good. What did you do? Like I kept answering every time they asked me a question, I would just turn it back on them and let's just like, let them talk. I wasn't giving them any compliments. I wasn't giving them anything to kind of feed off of. And the conversation was just so boring. It was 20 minutes. And uh, I haven't spoken to that person ever since then. Yes. You know, it was fantastic. It was like, okay. So yep. I gray rocked. Yeah. <laughs> Try some gray rocking. And it's a little more than that. It's like, it's not just not engaging, but it's don't personalize what they say. Just don't right. engage with them. Don't engage with them. Yeah. Right. Okay. We're, I'm now going to ask you a question. I think this person that sent this has a narcissistic parent. Hi, Dr. Romani. My name is Rose and I'm 23 years old. My question is, how do you heal from a romantic relationship with a narcissist when you have another narcissist in your life who is more permanent, such as a mother? Okay, so Rose, this is how you got to think about it. And for anyone listening, having a narcissistic parent makes you very vulnerable to attracting a narcissistic partner. It, you really have to remind yourself like, no, love is not abuse. Love is not being invalidated. Love is not gaslighting, even though that's what you got from your parent. So, what, you know, in your case, Rose, what you want to keep in mind is that, listen, you, are, you got out of the relationship with the narcissist. So bravo to you. First of all, you did that. But when a person has been through narcissistic abuse, it's not, or a narcissistic relationship, it's not an ordinary cycle of healing from a broken heart. When you have a healthy breakup, as I call them, it doesn't feel good. But it's, it, there's times you're nostalgic, you miss them, but you don't feel like someone did a number on your psyche. When you end a relationship with a narcissist, you feel chronically confused. You often feel anxious. You'll ruminate about the relationship over and over again and keep trying to understand what just happened to me. You'll have a lot of self-doubt, anxiety, sadness, and you might feel helpless, hopeless, or powerless and still replay the relationship in your mind over and over again. Now, then you have this issue with your mom because your mom, Rose, is likely doing to you many of the same things that your partner did. So you're getting re-triggered and re-triggered all the time. The difference is, Rose, you now you know what this is. You know that what this thing is and your mom's got it. And I will say to you, basically what I tell everyone I work with is remember two really important things, radical acceptance 
and realistic expectations. Radical acceptance means this is who this person is and they are not going to change. Realistic expectations mean that Rose, your mom is going to do what your mom always does. Okay. So when you talk to her, I would definitely advise you, Rose, don't talk to your mom about your relationship or your broken heart because you're probably going to get hurt more. And the more you understand your mom, in some ways, the more you're going to understand what just happened in your relationship. But you've got to understand it set up a vulnerability in you. But I would say, just like I just told Jennifer, make sure you try a little bit of gray rock with your mom. Don't engage and don't take her the most vulnerable parts of yourself because the odds are you're going to get hurt. So Rose, it becomes important for you to have trusted friends, go into therapy, have the safe space to take that information. And with mom, maybe keep the conversation about her. It hurts Rose because this is your mom and you want her to be there for you. But the radical acceptance piece is, yeah, that's not how this worked out for you. But there will be other robust, important relationships with women, friends, older women who will help guide you in that way. But stop going to an empty well, which is your mom. You will get re-triggered and give yourself that space to engage in the radical acceptance. It'll help you let not only your ex go, but it'll also help you let go of the expectations around your mother. If you have a narcissistic parent and they say things that, you know, they know, I don't know if narcissists know that they're bothering you, but like in full capacity, but if they're triggering you or if they're doing, asking things that, you know, are in a hurtful way or they're being passive aggressive, is it smart to pivot the subject to something else? Um, So for instance, if they're talking about, you know, oh, your ex-boyfriend this, could you say, well, what are you cooking for lunch today? Yes. Now keep in mind your idea of pivoting is a little bit of what happens in gray rock. There's a little bit in there, you know, it's sort of, if you have to have a conversation with them and they're asking you this thing and say, Oh gosh, you know, I don't even want to get into it. What are we having for lunch? Let's talk about something more cheerful. You can twist it around a bit so they don't feel like you've cut them off. Remember a narcissist loves gossip because they can weaponize it later. They put it in their pocket for later so they can pull it out and you know, stick stick it to you. So you got to be very careful about close disclosures to narcissistic people because invariably they'll weaponize it. And what you feel is a close, connected, intimate moment is actually them reloading. I'm literally writing down weaponizing gossip because that is just, I'm sure, you know, someone else listening is probably feeling the same way. It's like, yes, I know someone does this. I know exactly, I know people like this and it's so frustrating to talk to them because you're not safe. You're not safe when you talk. Like I'm just giving them bullets to start shooting me later, you know? That's exactly what you're doing. Okay. So I have a live audio question with Constance. Constance is joining us. Constance? I spent three and a half years with a narcissist and um, happily feel so much past it. But I sometimes wonder, just out of curiosity, does the narcissist, does he miss me? Is he capable of that? Or does he just miss the supply? Does he have regrets? Or is it, is it just the supply he misses? So Constance, it's a great question. And I mean, I, because I, I'm sure you're absolutely lovely. So when I say he probably doesn't miss you, it's not because you're not missing <laughs> because they don't miss people. What missing means to you, Constance, and what missing might mean to a healthy person, to you, to me, to Maria, I mean, it's, it's very, very different. They do. They miss the supply. They miss the routine. They miss, they miss whatever it was you brought to the table. But a lot of people will say, how does a narcissist move on so quickly after a relationship? Like, you, you, I mean, the ashes aren't even cold and they're already in a relationship and posting it on social media as though they've been together with this person for a long time. It feels heartless because you may be hurt 
seeing them move on. But the reason they can move on is goes to Constance's question. They don't really miss you because the supply is gone. They've got to get more supply. So they won't have regret because regret means, Constance, that we reflect on something we did wrong and that we wish we hadn't done or said that. They are not self-reflective enough and can't take responsibility for what they did wrong. So it won't be regret. If anything, they're very quickly going to tell themselves a story about good riddance to get you to move on to the next person. But they honestly, once they're gone, they really don't think about it anymore. They've just moved on to a new source of supply. It's like a locust. They clear one field, they move on to the next one. They don't, they don't think about the old field. Got it. Thank you. Oh, and just quickly, are they aware that they're narcissists? Are they aware of their own behavior? So Constance, it's a great question. And there's sort of two parts that, that, that answer. Some actually, interestingly, are. Okay. Now in that group of people who are, they break into two groups. There's one group, part one's one group of people who say, I'm narcissistic and I'm proud of it. They're like the people who don't want to wear masks. they're like i don't i'm completely immune and you know i'm so i've got all the swagger so it's a very much a posturing it's a power move to say i'm a narcissist now there is another group quite small we therapists will sometimes see them who are they're starting to realize it they burned a lot of bridges and they feel bad because they're lonely and saying "Mm, i might be responsible for this they're the unicorns they're the ones we might have a fighting chance at making a difference with a small group. Most of them don't really have any idea. And if you ever made the mistake of calling one of them out and saying you're a narcissist, you better make sure you're wearing a helmet because <laughs> they are going to come at you with, really? You're calling me the narcissist? Maybe you're the narcissist. And by the time they're done with their word salad of talking about your thing, oh, I'm so sorry I ever brought that up. So never call a narcissist out. Most of them aren't aware. And even amongst those who are, some of them are proud of it and wear it as a really strange entitled badge of honor. So interesting. Thank you. Thank Thank you, you, Constance. I have one more person who wants to ask an audio question, and that is Cecile. Cecile, you are live. So thank you for this webinar. It's, it's super interesting. Yes, I, ha- I have two questions, in fact. I mean, I realized that uh, you know, I used to be attracted to narcissistic individuals, and I was wondering, what does it say about uh, someone's you know, uh, personality type? I mean, my personality type, and what does it say about my own attachment styles? That's a great question, because I, always, I, I get this question a lot, too. Women ask me all the time, oh, I'm dating avoidant men, or I'm dating narcissistic men who have narcissistic traits. What does this say? about me and sometimes certain men especially avoided men are attracted to anxious women it's they're magnets to each other but yeah i'd love to hear what you think about you know what does it say about someone who's attracted to narcissists so cecile it's almost like it's, it's it goes into a pretty deep dive right because when we think about what a narcissist is it's somebody who invalidates us who leaves us feeling like we're not enough and if those are things that at any even a deep unresolved level we believe to be true about ourselves we keep people around us who validate what we believe to be true about ourselves. So in other words, you think all of us would want to be around people who tell us we're great, but if we don't feel great, we actually might, without even thinking it, realize we're drifting towards the people who really treat us badly. Now, this relates to a concept called trauma bonding. Trauma bonding is when a person grows up in a way where early in their life, they learn that invalidation and abuse and neglect equals love. Why? Because that's what they got as a kid. That a relationship that brings out thoughts like, I'm worthless, I'm no good, that represents love. 
you then get attached to a person who brings that into your life. That's called the trauma bond. Breaking the trauma bond is no small task because it's so ancient and it's so primitive. So much of the work in learning how to steer away from trauma bonding is your own individual therapeutic work. What happened? What kinds of lessons about attachment did you receive? Remember, all of us that do have, most of us, not all of us, many of us have more than one parent involved. We may have one healthy parent as well as one parent though who tells us we are no good. And that kind of disconnect might mean there's days where we're healthy, there's parts of us we're good about, but then there's other parts of us that we still carry that not enoughness. That trauma bond is the core to understanding the narcissistic relationship and why people are chronically dragged into these relationships, even though in many other areas of your life, you're successful and smart and wise in the space of love, the most primitive space in our lives, you keep getting pulled under again. And it's very much this strange, strange undertow that's a byproduct of the trauma bond. Cecile, thank you for your question. Let me take a text question before I go right back to an audio question. I feel like I want to record my boyfriend so he can hear how he sounds. Is that a good idea? Whoever wrote this question, first of all, I love you because you just, you set me up to talk about what a classic piece of narcissism is. Somebody, Jennifer asked early on, what are some things that might happen in a relationship that would tell me I'm with a narcissist? The first time you feel like you need to record conversations or record them, you're in a relationship with a narcissist because they so mess with your sense of reality that you want to capture them on audio and play it back to them. It's the same reason people save their text messages, their emails. They just want to say, do you realize, look, this is what you wrote. This is what you said. It will backfire. And I'll tell you why. Because a narcissist will gaslight you or say ridiculous things that are just grandiose and arrogant and awful, they don't have that much insight into it. So if you were to play this back to them, the most likely reaction you'll get is, you're so petty. Do you feel better about yourself now that you had to play that for me? Do you, huh? Because I can't believe I'm with someone so petty that they would, and now, you're feeling like, am I petty? It really, it, it, you're being gaslighted again, right? Because what you're doing is you're saying, listen, here's the truth of the situation. And I'm playing this for you because you're not listening to me. But I will tell you that the minute you feel the need to record your conversations, you're probably in a relationship with a narcissist. Another ringer is when you feel like they don't listen to me. So you write those texts that are so long that you gotta press that button at the bottom so it turns into a big page of text on your phone. You write those long texts, you write the long emails, you think, you know what, they're not listening to me. So you waste an entire Saturday writing a long email to them that is as good as Shakespeare. And you know what? Not only do they not read it, they'll either respond with like two words or something insulting. Do not waste your time. If they're not listening to you, they're not going to read your text or your email. And if anything, it's just going to put them on the attack and you could spend an entire weekend in a text battle. I'm exhausted just thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, so the answer to her question is no, don't do it. Save the recording for yourself though, so you can play it back to remind yourself that you're being gaslighted and view it as a wake-up call to ideally get out. I mean, I hear your advice and I think to myself like, oh Jesus, what if someone has children with this person? Uh -huh. It's not easy to get out. Now it's more of like, you're just collecting evidence for the pending divorce trial. So to your point, Maria, this is why I said, this is a group of singles, okay? Yeah. So to everyone on this call, 
Let me tell you the one thing you never, ever, ever want to do, and that's divorce a narcissist. You will walk out of it financially shredded, psychologically shredded, and have damaged your children. So it is, this is no joke. I mean, as much as, you know, we're telling the anecdotes and all of that, I'm so glad Maria made this a topic on this podcast because all of you are very interested in finding a healthy long-term relationship. And a lot of people think, you know what? Maybe, maybe if we move in. Maybe, maybe if we just get engaged, maybe if we just get married, you keep thinking like leveling up is somehow going to make this healthier. It's, you would honestly be better off having children on your own than trying to raise them with a narcissist. But if you've already gotten there and you manage to get, you know, have a family with this person, the fact is, yeah, you save those texts and emails and voicemails and audio recordings as part of a horrific multi-year battle in the courts of trying to set and reset and reset custody, of trying to play for therapists and people are trying to help your kids. Nobody walks out of having a narcissistic parent unscathed. If you've had a narcissistic parent, it doesn't mean you're damaged. What it means is though, you're carrying a very heavy burden. More often than not, People who had narcissistic parents experience a fair amount of anxiety and self-doubt as adults, always wondering, second-guessing themselves, thinking, maybe I shouldn't say that or any of that. Like, maybe I wasn't right. You gaslight yourself. Another pathway we see for people who've had narcissistic parents is they become vulnerable to what we call issues with regulation. They may turn to drugs and alcohol to regulate. They might have issues with food, spending, shopping, any of those things that are ways to regulate all of these moods that they never got to learn to express in a healthy way because of having a narcissistic parent. And then I hate to say it, where do you think narcissists come from? Many times it's because they had a narcissistic parent. There's also that risk. But the, one of the biggest risks of all is that you're at much greater risk of picking a narcissist as a, par- a partner for yourself. If you've had a narcissistic parent, really, you have to be on red alert to make sure you don't replicate that cycle in, the ne- in, the, in your adult relationship. As you were speaking, one of our live audience members sent us uh, a message and I want to read it. I just shared your advice with my dad who had to divorce my mom when I was little. He said he had to compromise on everything that made him unique from her. My mom was ruthless on icing him out of their mutual friends. I remember being happy for my dad divorcing my mom even at seven years old. Yep. I love that. Thank you. First of all, whoever shared that, thank you so much for sharing that because I think people really need to hear that. And even your father after all these years is that, and back when your father went through that, as I'm assuming you're an adult, there was no word for this. So this poor man was sort of shooting in the dark and trying to figure out what exactly is happening to me. But you saw you, that phenomenon of your mother isolating him from all the friends and turning them against him. That's actually got a name. It's called flying monkeys, where the narcissist recruits family and friends and tells them rotten things about you so they can ensure that all this narcissistic supply stays on their side of the street. Wow. But kids get this. Kids know this. And it does a real number on them. And honestly, what do you think the- kids figure out that there's, there's a problem? Is it when they go to other children's houses and see how their, those parents react to things or... I think that what ends up happening is that some kids don't ever recognize that it's a problem, Maria. I think, yes, seeing other people's families can be a piece of it. But here's what's so tough, Maria, is that when that child senses something's not quite right in my house, and then they go to someone else's house and play and see what a healthy family looks like, they feel a tremendous sense of shame. 
And wow. they, they have sometimes even isolate even more saying, oh, I'm, I'm from this mess. And they'll sometimes not even invite other kids to come over. And it's a legacy that can really dog them into the future. And what's really angers me is how much people gaslight kids. No, 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 he's fine. He didn't mean that. He didn't say that. He meant it. He said it. Don't gaslight the kid. You don't have to throw that parent under the bus, but you can, you can check in and say, are you okay? And yes, those were hurtful words. But so many kids who have narcissistic parents are gaslighted. Everything's going to be okay. Everything's fine. Everything's good. Everything's not okay. Right. Let me go to my next audio question. Hi, my name is Jackie and I am 25 years old. My question is, how do I know if I'm self-sabotaging in a relationship, i.e., like what are behavioral things I can watch out for myself that would indicate that I am self-sabotaging? We deal with self-sabotaging behaviors at work, you know, through our membership all the time. And, you know, we've learned that there is a process to changing your core self-sabotaging beliefs to not allow those, you know, your fears to trigger them when they come out. And the first thing to do, I mean, this is why I love journaling. If you're not journaling, you should do it. It really does help make a sense of your reality. But one of those things is to identify those fears and beliefs. When you find yourself um, getting triggered by a certain fear, you know, for a lot of women, a self-sabotaging belief is that I'm not good looking enough. You're fine. If you spend- <laughs> For most people, you're absolutely fine, especially if you're online dating and people are swiping, you're fine. You know, or maybe for some people who are not as sexually experienced, they feel like, oh, well, he's going to find out. So anyway, so find out what that fear is and identify it, write it down. And you have to understand and come to terms with the fact that these fears are based purely on false beliefs. That's what you think of you. It's not what others think of you. You know, whenever I hear a woman say to me, oh, I'm not good looking enough. I think to myself, ask your friends, do they, I mean, I know friends can be nice and say, oh, everyone's great looking, but the truth of the matter is that that's how you feel about yourself. Where did you get that belief from? And just keep asking yourself that question until you ask yourself that question multiple times. Okay. Why do I feel this way? Okay. Why do I really feel this way? Okay. Why do I really, really feel this way? Like start writing those down, start dissecting into a spider web, essentially. So much of, I think, false beliefs come from not only just how our parents parented us, but also society, like what the media sells to us of what's right, what should be, how you should feel about someone. After you've done that, the the action that I think you should take on to changing those beliefs is to start shifting your definition of your own worth. When you find yourself thinking negatively about yourself or you're having those self-sabotaging beliefs, I would tell you to embrace those painful feelings to start working through them. I, I, t- I must text this to people every day when I get questions. Stop being so hard on yourself. And I think the last thing that I would say, and I'd love to hear your take on this, is to create boundaries. You know, you have to learn what you're not going to tolerate and what you're not going to compromise on. Otherwise, you're just never going to overcome self-sabotaging beliefs and actions and whatnot. What do you think, Dr. Rama? I mean, you, you answered that so beautifully. I can't add much else. A couple of the things I'll say that are much more specific to narcissistic relationships. Oh yeah, I would love to. That's you know, <laughs> is because you think you say, you think you said them, Maria, are absolutely applicable both in non-narcissistic relationships and narcissistic relationships where self-sabotage is happening. One thing I would tell anyone who is um, self-sabotaging is be mindful of your use of rationalizations. Catch yourself in how you rationalize someone's, they're like, you know, they're late a lot. Oh, they work really hard. Mm, no, they have, a, they have a watch and they have a phone. They could next time say, I'll be there at one. 
and and then you, you they can they can learn from that but watch the rationalizations you make for people rationalization as i was talking when i was um when we were talking before i think it was seal who was um who brought up a question where um we we're talking about the trauma bond rationalization is a big part of the trauma bond you actually make it okay for them to behave badly so watch yourself and how you rationalize their behavior and how you give out second chances secondly is ask yourself how shame is playing into this for many many people the entire phenomenon of shame those old ancient things in us that we don't want people to know about us they could be about our family history they could be traumatic experiences that have happened to us they could be things about ourselves that we just don't want anyone to know if for any reason those things get triggered that's often when people isolate because they don't want other people to see it, right? I always say, you know, and I don't, I always say to people, always pay attention to the old adage, sunlight is the greatest disinfectant. That many times people who self-sabotage also, they isolate themselves. So they don't get to hear other voices of reason. And if you're in a relationship with a narcissist, that means that's the only voice you're hearing, which is a voice of abuse, which is a voice of confusion, which is a voice of gaslighting, which is a voice of invalidation. And that shame can lead you to isolate. So the key is even when it feels hard, don't isolate. Go talk to your healthy people. We put 90% of our time into the most toxic relationships we have, leaving only 10% for the good, healthy people around us. You got to flip that math. Give 90% to the good people and just give what little bits left over to whatever toxic people you need to deal with. That's great. Let's do one last audio question and we're going to tackle some text questions before we conclude. My name is Marissa and I'm 40 years old. I share custody with my ex who I believe has narcissistic traits. How can I improve how I interact with him, especially since I've started dating again? Okay, so Marissa is raising exactly what we were starting to talk about is how do you do how do you co-parent with a narcissist? There's actually a really, really interesting website out there, and I'm gonna put it out there so maybe Chrisula can share it with the group, which is um it's called onemomsbattle.com. It's all one one mom's battle. And it can be for men as well. But she talks about it's run by a friend of mine named Tina, and Tina talks on her website about yellow rock. Co-parents don't always have the luxury of gray rock. Yellow rock is where you're a little bit warmer. So you're still not engaging. You're still not giving up details of your life and all of that. But to show your children that their parents are still a team, even if you don't feel like a team, try yellow rocking a little, keeping it a little warm. Number two, Marissa, document everything. I mean everything. You've got to document because if any, for any reason you're like, things are going well and then things aren't, you need the collective documentation. And that means you've got to get disciplined. That there are things out there called Family Wizard, which are special apps that the courts sometimes ask people to use to communicate, which the court then has access to. If your case isn't quite there, I still think you must, must, must document everything. Number three, watch your social media use. One thing a narcissistic co-parent is often looking for is an opportunity to jump on your kind of parenting fail. I don't think, obviously, dating after divorce isn't a fail, but if you're out with, a, with somebody holding a glass of red wine, he's going to paint you out to be an alcoholic. So you need to be very careful that that social media is tight, 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 or you just get rid of it, or you use it as a place to post things that I don't know, like to be part of groups for your kids' school and that kind of thing. So one of the legacies of the narcissistic divorce is social media is something that they will try and use against you, especially if you have 
joint custody of your kids. Those are the key issues. And then Marissa, I would, there are some great support groups out there. I've given you that one resource and anyone else who needs it is a great one. But the other thing I'd also keep in mind is therapy can also be a great place to recalibrate. There can be so much anger, so much frustration, and so much helplessness that comes from being in these situations that those negative moods can take a toll on you. And then finally, Marissa, keep an eye on your kids too, because kids pick up on stuff and sensing the tension might be also difficult for them. But I'd also say, finally, finally, Marissa, radical acceptance. Never, ever completely let your guard down. Just when you think you and your narcissist have reached a good stride is exactly when you don't know what's going to set them off, but something sets them off. And in terms of your dating life, do not, under any circumstances, bring anyone around those children until, honestly, you are so committed in this new relationship. Because once again, your narcissist will use that as an opportunity to paint you as an unfit parent. It usually won't work, but you'd be amazed at how far down the road they can get with this nonsense. So just be aware. That's really good advice. Let's go to some text questions before we wrap up. So Christopher asks, can you differentiate between a narcissistic personality and a general asshole who denies you basic emotional needs and stability? I actually, before you answer this, I get this question a lot too. I, you're going to answer this on another question I'm going to ask, which is this. What is the difference between love bombing and someone who's just interested in me? Okay. All right. So I'll answer that. Then I'll go to Christopher's question. We'll do right. the love bombing. Okay. I think we have to define love bombing too. <laughs> love bombing is the intense, idealized, seductive dating relationship with a narcissist in the early phase of the relationship. It's overwhelming. You know, you might be taking like a world trip on your third date. You know, not, maybe not nowadays, but there was a time. Jetting off to like, you know, uh, Dubai on your third date right. in a first class seat. You might be getting lots and lots of gifts sent to your job, like bouquets of flowers. There may be um, a lot of excessive texting, good morning, gorgeous, good afternoon, gorgeous, good night, gorgeous. And it all feels so good. And you kind of feel like you're living the fairy tale. You're living the rom-com. You're living the Disney movie. And it's easy to get swept away in it, but it's almost too much. It feels intense. And you might even be gaslighted by other people say, oh, come on, what are you do? Why are you complaining about this? You've been saying you want to meet someone. Now you finally meet someone and they're so into you. And you're thinking, ah, what do I do? What do I do? It's too much. And, it, and things may move too fast during love bombing. Let's move in. Let's take this exactly. three-week trip together. Let me meet your whole family. You meet my whole family. What are they doing? They're painting you in a corner. Once everyone's been met, it's harder to disengage. Once you live with someone, it's harder to break up. They'll often say, what a coincidence. My lease just ended and we're four weeks into a relationship. Say, great, why don't you find a new apartment then? Because... It's very easy to get sucked into it. That's love bombing. What, and here's what happens is some people during love bombing will say, ooh, this is a lot. And they'll fight it and they might even resist it. Sometimes accept it, sometimes not. And then one day you relax and say, okay, maybe this is, maybe I am getting my fairy tale. And one day you're all in and you relax. And that's the day they start devaluing you. The minute they've got you like a butterfly, they trapped under a cup then you're, you're How long do you think it takes to figure out if you're being love bombed? See, I've always thought of this whenever I answer this question with my audience, I always say, you know, love bombing, not only is it, you know, grandiose and, you know, a lot, just a lot of 
flattery and chivalry like just it's just like you said too much it's also a lot of talk of the future yes yes so you bring up now maria this point of future faking okay future faking is what narcissists do they're like we're going to this and i'm going to apply to med school and i'm going to buy this house and then we're going to go here and we're going to sail around the world and and all these things and that's going to be your whole life because then 10 years in the relationship i'm going to change I'm going to go into therapy. I'm going to do nothing. They, but the promises are what keep you on the chain. So that future faking is part of it as well. It's a lot of promises. But you got to be careful because love bombing doesn't always look the same. If you're with a covert narcissist, the love bombing becomes this really almost insane level of leaning into you and saying, tell me everything about you. And you feel like they're like literally trying to peer into your insides. Mm. And it feels like hyper empathy. But in that way, they're sort of overstudying you. I can promise you the things they learn, they're going to use against you down the road. It's too much. Too much is the only way I can describe it. But it's a, it's a characteristic of a lot of narcissistic relationships when they begin. And what love bombing is a great tactic for them. Because what happens is you're so distracted by the trips and the future they promise and all that, that you're not paying attention to all the other red flags that are popping up pretty steadily early in the relationship. But you're just sort of overwhelmed on where am I supposed to put this next dozen roses? And oh gosh, I never thought about sailing around the world that you don't stop to think like, man, this person throws a tantrum every time they have to wait in line. Like you start missing that stuff. And so to Christopher's question though, because I don't want to- So to Christopher's question, just to reiterate, can you differentiate between a narcissistic personality and a general asshole or jerk okay. <laughs> who denies you basic emotional needs and stability? There's really not. I mean, so I want, the, Christopher's question is a great setup for this idea that narcissism is not a diagnostic term. Okay, it's not. It's not even a clinical term. It's an adjective. A narcissism is a noun, I guess. But it's like, you're stubborn. I'm friendly she's shy. Those are all things that describe us. Those aren't diagnoses. And being a narcissist is in essence, the, the really non-technical term is being a, an asshole, which is things like entitled and arrogant and completely emotionally unavailable to other people and devaluing and being contemptuous of other people's emotions. When I hear that someone's an asshole, I immediately say, I, I, bet I know what we're dealing with. I ask a few questions that I do as a clinician and I'm usually, it's usually the case. So I do think that asshole is a red flag. You know, if somebody says, Hey, I would love you to be my cousin. You know, he's an interesting guy. He can be an asshole. No, don't take the date, you know, because it's this, it speaks to an arrogance and a dismissiveness. But I think that narcissism takes in very clear territory. One of the points I want to make Maria, cause I think it's important for everyone on this, uh, on this podcast to understand this, which is narcissism at its core. These people are incredibly fragile and incredibly insecure. I'd say they're pathologically insecure. And all of these things, the arrogance, the entitlement, the grandiosity, those are like a protection around them, a protection to keep them from having to really deal with their inside insecurity. That's why they're so sensitive because they don't want that insecurity to be shown to the world. These are the most insecure people in the room. That's why they're dangerous. That's why they lash out. That's why they get so they get so ramped up so quickly because they're always on edge because they're so insecure. People right. think that they do they really think that they're all that? No, they really don't. But it's deep down inside. So it's not even something that's in their their ready awareness. But that's why they're so afraid of being shamed to the world that when they feel like somebody points out one of their so-called deficits, they lash out. One last question to kind of wrap up. We were saying before about a love bombing, let's say. So Courtney asks post two year narcissistic relationship one year ago and started to date again. I'm starting to date again. 
I find myself wanting too much intimacy too fast. What are some tips to get good boundaries and not think love bombing is normal? Number one already, you're aware that it's not normal. I love that she's saying that. Like this is a you know not normal. Yeah, I always tell people like well, you know, when you're a child, you don't know that the oven gets hot and that you'll burn your hand. And because you're learning this now, now it's like the oven. Okay, one day you're seven years old, you burn your hand. Okay, you're not gonna touch the oven again when it's hot. So it's the same thing. Now I feel like now that you're learning vocabulary, now that you're becoming more aware, it's a lot easier to navigate the dating space. It should be. But remember, going back to that earlier point of the trauma bond, right? Right. Because that idea of intense, 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 overwhelming is a, for some people that I almost feel a little bit safe. It's a place to hide. It's something to do. This is why many times people are given guidance that sometimes the best relationships are born out of friendships because you've now had a chance to pace this slowly. You kind of know about what kind of toast do they prefer and do they you know you learn these things about them over time but with its low stakes and so by the time you might try to you know level up and enter into a more of an intimate relationship some of that stuff's out of the way but we don't always have that luxury so it really does become in some ways it becomes pacing it's ensuring that you hold on to your life and your identity you have nights out with friends don't end those. You have other things you value, an exercise class or a meditation class. Don't stop going to it. It's very tempting to go all in and say, oh, I'm going to cancel everything so I can spend all my time with this person. That's when things fall apart because now you've lost your scaffolds that keep you healthy, that keep you from getting isolated. So I'd say this relationship should fit into your life. That's good for you. You don't make your life fit that relationship. One last question. Jessica asks, can we discuss healing journey? I don't even know what healing journey is, Dr. Romney. I don't think, I don't know that Jessica means it as a thing. I think it's a healing journey. So which is how do you heal from this? And I will tell you that there are very clear steps you need to take. It is things like, I tell people, you've got to bring yourself down slowly. This is about self-compassion. It's about things like mindfulness, self-kindness, being kinder to yourself, as kind to yourself as you are to other people, understanding that everyone's going through something, all of that. It's also... This is going to sound awful, but I'm going to say it. If you've been through a relationship with a narcissist, please write down every awful thing they did to you, all of it. I don't care if you fill three journals, because just when you feel like you're melancholy or miss them, you need to read that and say, oh God, yeah. you know, oh, I'm yeah. glad I got out of this. You need to take a break. You need to do some healing work and not throw yourself right back into the relationship space. Um, you also need to do things like, Focus on, you know, again, that mindfulness piece is huge because it's very, very much how we heal by staying focused right now what's happening and not getting us caught up in some of the rumination of the past. Therapy is, a, is massive. And ideally a therapist who understands narcissistic abuse so you can understand how your own past history might have made you vulnerable to this and why it's so difficult for you to fully let this go. And I always say to people, I call it my crackers in bed exercise. I want you to think about all the stuff you couldn't do because you were so controlled or invalidated in this relationship. Maybe you stopped watching French films. Maybe you stopped cooking foods that you liked. Maybe you stopped um, doing other things you loved doing, exercise classes, or maybe they were so dismissive of all your friends, you stopped spending time with them. Reinvigorate that life again. Crackers in bed, ain't nobody, you know, you, you, nobody can kick you out of your own bed for eating crackers. But do what you need to do and bring that old life back and go back and find those people that you had to put aside because your narcissist viewed them as a threat. 
once you start doing those things again and you're reintroduced to your life, that's a huge part of the healing journey. I want to talk about today's dating landscape. Like the landscape shifted so dramatically when we all got stay-at-home orders. And part of me wants to believe that those people who were very narcissistic got a bit of a break or those people who would be duped by narcissists got a bit of a break because, you know, it's only so much you can do via Zoom. Yes and no, though. I'm going to tell you why I think yes, or I say yes and no. Yes, because you couldn't be quite so love bomby and all of that. But I think there's a real yearning in people. And, you know, that people are like, oh my gosh, I just, I'm lonely and I've been wanting to meet people and I'm getting older. And so what there's a real danger of is that narcissists can still be charming on Zoom. They really can. And so the, 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 the challenge then becomes that they take their charm and their charisma and all that, they play it out on Zoom. And now the person who's not narcissistic, the person who's getting drawn in, relieved that now they can actually meet this person, may not see the red flags because they're like, oh, I'm so happy to finally meet this person. So I actually think right. there's a tremendous risk. Right. Okay. Yeah. That, that does make sense. Oh man. I really thought. No, sorry, honey. It's actually getting oh. worse. Like I'm seeing it left and right in my clinical practice. People are getting played more by narcissists and they crave closeness so much no. that they're actually not being as discerning. I've been able to see a shift in how um, the people interact with us over the last three months. So in the beginning, there's a lot of dating confusion. Like how am I supposed to date? What am I supposed to be doing? How do, what kind of virtual background do I need on Zoom? So that was phase one. Then there was the next phase, like part of phase one, which was like, okay, I'm getting comfortable being home now. This happened around the beginning of May yeah. where people were, I think, just a lot more comfortable with yeah. the reality of what is happening. Um, there was less anxiety, let's say. Mm-hmm. And then I feel like we entered phase two last week. Somehow, at least, at least, at least in my professional correspondence, with how I talk to people since last Monday, I feel like there's just been a, a difference where it's, I'm not getting so much of like, how do I date during stay at home? It's more of like, how do I meet this person that I've been talking to for so long? Yep. Or how quickly can we have sex? Even though we've been talking yep. this long, I've never met them in person. Met when them in can person, we have sex? Right. And I would say meeting someone in person is an entirely different game because what's going to happen is you're on Zoom, right? There's no, there's no waiter. There's no bartender. There's no other people around. You're not getting to see how they deal with disappointment and frustration. Maybe a little, the Zoom connection or something's not working. But I think that there's a real risk that, you know, if, if you're what we call in science in vivo, like it's a real life relationship, now you're going to start meeting them. You should have all of your radars up and honed to make sure that you're paying attention because uh, the the, str- the struggle is from March to May to June, a lot of people idealized these people in these spaces mm-hmm. and they want it to work. Gosh, darn it. I put in three of the weirdest months in history on this. I want this to work. I want to be a COVID love story. Mm, you don't, I mean, I don't know that you, you, you want to be very careful that you don't end up with a new disease dog in you, you know, so, which is narcissism and all the related problems. I guess what scares me with the next phase in dating, so I'm I'm saying this is phase three, is towards the end of the summer or the beginning of the fall, if there's a resurgence of COVID-19 cases across the country or across the world for our international listeners, I predict people are going to buddy up more this time, the next time around. They're not going to be alone in their apartments if they can help it. And if they buddy up with a partner that they've just started dating, that's a recipe for disaster. A hundred percent recipe. So, you know, Mm -hmm. for the the warning, but if they buddy up with a friend, they might, it's a lot easier. I feel like to navigate the dating world. If you can bounce off a friend after your zoom talk, 
this is my prediction. I, I don't know, but I feel like, you know, I just got off the call with, you know, John. Um, and let me tell my, my roommate Jane about how that went. And now Jane can give me like real time feedback. Like, Oh, is that really who you want to be with? Or isn't it kind of soon to be meeting someone or talking? Like, I feel like if there is another resurgence of COVID, we might be taking different, um, just a very different approach to dating again. But I don't know. We'll see, I guess. I, I think we're seeing, this is going to, this is really the uncharted waters, really. entirely uncharted waters, like beyond. Yeah. And so I think that what's, what has happened is that people have learned human relationships matter, real life, human relationships matter. We miss each other. And you know what my, my daughter said it to me and one of the most beautiful things that I'd say that replies to all singles, she's only 20. And you know, I, I adjusted quite beautifully to, to quarantine. I can see my clients online. I'm older. I am an introvert. Like this has been heaven for me, but with tears in her eyes, she said something so beautiful. She said, you know, I said, no, this will be fine. She said, mom, you don't understand someone my age. All I want is to know that someday I'm going to be able to just dance with a stranger again. And even as wow. I say it again, it, it hits me here. I'm like, of course you're 20 years old or 25 or 30, heck even 50 dancing with a stranger and all these beautiful things that are part of getting to know each other is something that's been lost. But I think in that loss, there's a real risk that people are so desperate to make things work out that they're not paying attention. And it is, I just want people to not, not pay attention. I want them to remain aware. And we are going into an interesting, interesting landscape. And, uh, and this is going to end someday, Maria. We're not going to live like this forever. We may be living like this in some weird way for 12 to 18 months. But when it's done, we're going to go back to a life where people go out and have a first glass of wine together and have that coffee date. And, and the, the same things I talked about today are relevant today as they will be then. Dr. Rami, this was amazing. It's incredible. I really thank you for joining us. You can follow Dr. Ramani on all of her social media accounts, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. You can find her with the tag Dr. Ramani, Dr. Spelled Out. We will also have more details about her books uh, in the episode notes, but you can, you should definitely check out her two books. Should I stay or should I go surviving a relationship with a narcissist? And don't you know who I am? How to stay sane in the era of narcissism, entitlement, and incivility. You can also check out our website, dr-romany.com. Again, doctor spelled out. Want more dating and relationship tips? Slide into my DMs on Instagram. Warning, I do screenshot. I'm at Matchmaker Maria. And thank you for listening to Ask a Matchmaker. If you love what you heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe. If you have a dating or relationship question or a big aha you'd like to share, you can email us at askamatchmakerpodcast at gmail.com. Until then, see you next week. <laughs>